the the his boss Agamemnon, the the great you know Greek king, uh, makes Achilles angry, and Achilles decides that he's no longer going to fight the battle that's impending tomorrow. So the the Greeks, without a leader, are struggling to find out what to do, and Patroclus, Achilles' cousin, decides that he will bear the armor of Achilles and lead them into battle. So Patroclus leads the Greeks on the beaches of Troy, and um, Hector, Achilles' arch-rival, sees the armor of Achilles from far off, and he decides, this is my moment to strike. And so Hector slays who he thinks is Achilles, removes his helmet, only to find that it's Patroclus instead. I think that this, this story, this particular bit of the Iliad, uh, feels a little bit like life in some ways, because life is, in some sense, uh, a bitter struggle to decide who's going to do something. Often, like Patroclus, when there seems to be no leader, we're asking ourselves, well, if someone isn't going to do it, am I going to have to do it? Am I going to have to hero up and make something happen? And I think that this is the great spiritual impulse. Perhaps we feel like we're always perpetually in a spiritual battle that we simply just cannot win. And often it feels like in life that we're putting on this armor that just doesn't fit correctly. Who am I to do X, Y, or Z? But maybe I charge anyway, feeling the, the chain mail a little bit too big, the helmet not fitting right, the shield a little lopsided. But then again we ask, who is going to fight the battle anyway? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Habakkuk 3, 1-16. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shijianath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted his hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrashed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. 
the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your power and it goes out to us. We thank you for the gift of the gospel contained in your words. Oh Lord, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Would you grant it? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, y'all, so Habakkuk 3, we're, we're making our way. We are almost through the book. We're now at a point where Habakkuk is, has been dialoguing with God a, a back and forth. And we heard that in 1 and 2 where Habakkuk uh, calls out to God and says, how long? You know, and, and God gives him this very complicated answer with a little bit of a, a kernel of the gospel in it. And then uh, another dialogue. And now we're actually getting to be able to peer into, to look into uh, Habakkuk's private prayer life with God. Fascinating. And so the first thing that I want us to notice is that uh, this, in, in verse 1, this prayer is according to Shigianote, which is a fun Hebrew word, which is mostly unknown, but means uh, simply that it's a, a choral instruction in the sense that this is a prayer that is meant to be repeated. It's a prayer that has been meant to be sung for generations. It's something when Jews would gather together, they might sing and remember. Uh, Habakkuk's prayer, in many ways, is a continuing, enduring uh, reality of God's potency. And so last week, we, we looked at uh, five different woe oracles that God gave concerning Babylon. Uh, he, as Slim talked about, it was sort of the history of the world and a sense of the, the great sins, the great uh, nations being uh, curved in on themselves in a way that it brought their own destruction. And so God answered, if you'll remember, in verse 20, it was the, a long list and finally ended by this. The Lord is in his holy temple let all the earth keep silence before him. And this is, this is an opinion, but I think that it's true. That, that this prayer in many ways, in, in chapter 3, might just be Habakkuk meditating on the reality of the silence that people have to keep in the face of God's holiness. And I think that that's why we, we get this image, the strong, powerful imagery that's happening in Habakkuk 3. So one question that the text begs, right? If you're not asking it already, you should be. Why is God moving? For what reason is he going out and performing action in this passage? Because the way that he's been interacting and dialoguing with Habakkuk has not been this. It's been a simple dialectic. It's been a back and forth. And now we're thrust deeply into action. And so here's the answer. Look at verse 6. It says, he stood and he measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. This image, I wish that there was just a way that we could zap the Hebrew reality immediately from the text into our mind. Because what God is doing here is he's actually stepping up to look and to measure and to shake that, that's actually wordplay that's happening in the Hebrew. God is looking and he's just, it's like a, it's like a child with a, a, a jar of coins. He's just, just shaking and measuring what's in there. His, he's displaying his full power, his reality over what's going on in the earth. 
And so remember that God may be raising up Babylon. That's what happened in chapters one through two. But as we remember from the woe oracles, they tell us that God will ultimately uh, exact uh, justice on those who are unjust, that Babylon ultimately gets what's coming to them. And that is this reality in six, that God is looking at the things that are evil, stepping up, measuring them, and preparing for battle. So one thing that you ought to know too about this text is that the Hebrew is mind-bending. The ESV takes all of these words, particularly the verbs, and just makes them kind of general past, right? So, you know, his brightness was like the light, and before him went pestilence, things of the sort. There's a textual layer happening underneath the text, where the verbs are actually some future, some present, some past. Uh, Terribly, terribly confusing. And what ultimately it means is this, that we in this passage are in a time warp where both a past reality meets a present reality meets a future reality. So we might say that, that this is something that has happened, something that is happening, and something that will happen in the future. I wish that, that English had a way to do that other than explaining just this is happening in the past, this is happening in the present, this is happening in the future. So we are invited at a front row seat to see something that is both a past reality moving, protruding, exploding into the future. So what's the point of all of this imagery? I mean, even reading the text, hearing it, it just feels like it's image after image after image. What could Habakkuk possibly be doing to give us a a loaded image like this? What is the point of these battle scenes, which seems so uh, unlike God's character in some ways. Well, let's do this. Before we understand the battle, let's set the scene. Let's, for a moment, enter the arena. So Habakkuk gives us this vivid image of war. He lets us enter into the arena to sit in a chair and watch what God is doing in the world. So we're watching a cosmic battle, a cosmic war unfold and take place. So, so bear with me on this, okay? Imagine that we're all together in, in a Colosseum type of setting. The tension is in the air. We all have our hero. The other side has theirs. So here comes the enemy, right? Strutting in. Imagine a boxing match, something of the sort. He's got his hype people around him, and we uh, are, are watching him approach, and you can hear it, right? The booze the hisses, the uh, banana peels being thrown at the enemy, that is not our victor, that's not our champion. But all of a sudden, there's a rumbling in the ground, and we begin to hear, to get a murmur, a sense in the air, it's electric, that our champion is arriving. Now we begin to see, to sensorily experience this description. Here it is. Our victor came from Taman, the holy one from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, or you might say his splendor covered all that was visible, that was up, and the earth, the, the, the ground, was full of his praise. As our victor arises, the whole planet, the, the, the grass, the trees, imagine them clapping their hands, they're up, they're being as most praiseworthy as possible. The ground is shaking 
as the victor arrives. He goes on. Our victor walks into the arena and his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. That that idea of the rays flashing from his hand, that image is used, the same word is used when Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. Uh, It is a glowing, it's almost impossible to bear. The victor walks in and it's, it's almost as if everyone, all of us in the Colosseum can't even bear to look at him. That's his light, that's his power. In verse five, this goes on, we're still sitting, we're still watching him come in. And it says, and before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. That's one way to say it. Another way to say it, this, this term often used, it's, in its deepest reality, it means this, that when he steps on the ground, sparks come out of his heels every time his feet touch the floor. So as God walks, it's like he's leaving a fire behind him. Stepping and sparks are flying. And then, of course, verse 6, he steps into the arena finally. He's made it center stage, and he begins to shake the arena. The rumbling is uh, visceral. We can feel it. And as a result, the creation around us, the mountains, try to run away. They try to slide out of view. They try to simply hide. So as the rest of the scene plays out in 8 to 15, as you and I are watching this happen, we begin to realize something. That we know this imagery and we've seen it before. We're struck with a strange sense of deja vu. Did you catch it? Moses writes about the same thing in Exodus 15, 6. After describing what's mentioned in this passage, the chariots being destroyed by water. He says this. This sounds a lot like uh, verse 4. Your, hand, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Again, we hear this going onwards in Judges from Deborah's mouth. She says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. It doesn't stop there. We continue into David's kingship. He writes in the Psalms, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him, sounds a lot like sparks, right? And burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings uh, come from his hand. And the earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. And this is the point, y'all. This is the point, that the one who enters into the battle is no stranger to it. He's been here before. He's been doing it from Genesis 3.15 onwards. This is his battle. He is rightfully walking into an arena that not only he created, but that he owns completely. He knows this battle more intimately than anyone. And there is only one reason that God enters into the arena. Are you ready for it? Verse eight. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot 
of salvation. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. There is one reason that God enters the arena in this way, and the answer is this, for salvation, period. Salvation is the reason that the Lord breaks into the world with violence, with trembling, with lightning from his hand, with the earth quaking at his feet. He comes in for salvation. And so that's a nice churchy word. We have to ask, why so much attention to salvation? I mean, why couldn't we have just done that back in Habakkuk 2 or 1 in the dialogue that you were having with God? Because God knows how we experience the battle of salvation. And what I mean by that is, why are we getting this imagery? Why is the Bible coming after us in a visceral, on a gut level sense that we can smell the blood in the air, we can taste the terror, we can feel the trembling? Why? Why is it going after our senses? And it's this, because the battle of salvation is simply not fought in your intellect or in the abstract. The battle of salvation in your life I'd be willing to wager, is fought on a real, visceral, gut level of everyday decisions and boring life encounters. That the battle of salvation often feels like Patroclus, right? If no one is going to fight for me, I'll just do it for myself. And that seems to capture, in a lot of ways, what it feels like to live in the 21st century malaise of of Western America. That boring decision-making often is the best way to get a leg up on others, to somehow earn some sense of salvation or importance. And so let me be clear too. When we're talking about salvation, we're not talking about only conversion. We're talking about a holistic salvation, a rescuing from something completely foreign, to be pulled out of yourself, to feel uh, relief or uh, a burden lifted, to be uh, completely outside of your circumstances. Think of it this way. Salvation is an act of deliverance. And so I think on a micro level, salvation gives us freedom. But I don't have to tell you that. I think that the majority of experiences that we've all had with a perceived sense of deliverance come from concocted, mustard, back-splitting effort. That freedom often feels like, or salvation often feels like, something that I've simply had to work for myself that I've had to achieve because that freedom is only coming from a work well done, a job well accomplished. However, it never quite seems to taste as sweet as we dreamed that it would. I think this is captured well in a a famous clip from our, our old friend with the New England Patriots, Tom Brady. And he says this in an interview, thinking about, about working out and accomplishing and finding some sense of deliverance from our work. He says this, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and I still feel like there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I've reached my goal. I've reached my dream. My life is, well, me, I think, God, there has to be more than this, end quote. Our personal salvation project often looks like painstaking efforts to control even the most uncontrollable aspects of life. That's how we feel deliverance on a visceral gut level. An example might be uh, the late night sweat 
over whether money is coming in this month? How can I manage my cash flows? This is, uh, I think, the, the most ubiquitous example. Uh, it's the nervous checking, drafting, redrafting, editing, and proofing of emails to that one person in your life whose approval you desperately need. It's the wringing of your hands over whether your child is going to make it at school in the fall. It's not sleeping. It's a droopy-eyed effort to keep going, to never cease. And these are some of the ways that we contrive salvation for ourselves. It's a desire simply to make it through. It's just to be breathing on the other side. For some reason, that feels like as good as it's going to get in this life. That feels like momentarily what salvation could be. It's an exhausting uh, rat race of survival out there. And our gut instinct is to take the wheel. But we all know, we all know that for some reason it feels soul-sucking every time we engage in it. And a question that we have to ask is why does it always feel tiring? Why does it always simply feel like death? And so here it is. We're given this imagery in Habakkuk 3 for a reason because it's meant to stir us at a visceral gut level. So what is Habakkuk's response to this stirring, a gut level experience with God? Here it is in 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, God's in the grammar. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. So wait quietly is a, is a less nuanced translation. What's really happening is the force of this is that the word means to wait with a rest. It's often used to describe animals that are laying down. Imagine that Habakkuk's waiting with rest is like an animal that senses the rain coming and lays down. And this has to be breathtaking because I don't know many who do this. What is happening here is that Habakkuk is waiting for the day of the Lord in the midst of great tumult and violence. In the day-to-day present realities of living with the Babylonians, let's not forget that Habakkuk is surrounded by injustice, people who have no sense of justice for him and his people. He is surrounded by an aching sense of being persecuted. He is living with them, his captors. Habakkuk is saying, I am ready to wait with peace. I'm ready to lie down. And don't we all want that? I mean, this is why we're always speaking peace over each other, peace brother, we're throwing up peace signs, we're getting, you know, shalom tattoos, etc. right? We're always about trying to find some sense of inner peace or, or any manifestation of that. And so Habakkuk clearly has it. But the question, of course, you and I as readers now are asking is, how in the world did you get that? I want to be able to lie down when I feel the rain coming, but how do I do it? So Habakkuk writes, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us, our invaders. And here is the answer. Habakkuk, in his quietly waiting, has given up his contrivings 
for salvation. He has given up trying to create his own deliverance. He has stopped and he is laying down. His body is now trembling at the reality of God's coming. At a visceral level, Habakkuk's legs are shaking because he is so confident that God is coming. He's seen it in the past. He's experiencing it now. It's coming in the future. This is the God of the arena. And ultimately what happens, right? We've talked about the past and the present. The future reality is this. Jesus simply earns this peace in the calm for you. Make no mistake. In the Garden of Gethsemane, after a night of prayer, Jesus simply says this, fascinating. He says, see, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Looking at the disciples, he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And he rises to meet Judas, to meet his death. That is peace in the midst of the calm. That's laying down in the middle of the rain. He rises up to meet Judas by saying, let us get up. We must meet him ultimately accomplishing salvation for everyone. When Jesus walked into the arena, he, like God in this picture, shakes the nations at the very reality of his conquering, the very reality of his death. If you remember what happens, particularly in Matthew's account, Jesus is crucified, the temple veil is torn, and the earth shakes. So simply, The answer, the Habakkuk prayer is this. Salvation is not your battle to fight because the battle has already been won. We say it all the time, but it's true, right? For Christians, there actually is no shame. There is no condemnation. There is no perpetual guilt. The need to prove yourself, the need to wrestle for your salvation by earning it in your day-to-day through emails or interactions or uh, quippy words or being clever or being uh, you know, witty or simply maybe people think that you're dumb and that's what you do. But this is it, that there's no need to prove yourself by achieving, by putting some sort of down payment on your life, by being good enough and then hoping that God will do the rest. The simple reality is this, it was never your battle. It was never your battle. So when we look at the cross and we experience the resurrection of Jesus, we put down our swords and we wait because that's all we can do. Habakkuk is now at the end of himself. He sees God's interaction with the world and he's just done. He's resolved to just waiting and trembling, to wait quietly in peace. And praise God for that because the fight is over. It is God in the arena. So unlike Patroclus, uh, the armor of salvation fits Jesus perfectly. He is the rightful victor. It is his battle and he has won it. He won it for you so that he could give you the victory that he earned. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.